0: get going. Will any of
1: the other
0: classes be published? Yeah, we didn't record any of the others, uh, Bishop Lucero's or the Johnson's or any of those. Uh, I, I guess it would be helpful at some point if we were to do that. That's probably a recommendation we'll pass along to the next conferences that we do that. So, All right, um, have a, uh, but based on uh, this week... Um, I have a Christmas gift suggestion for uh, sisters, okay? I thought this was nice. sometimes if, sometimes, depending on how things are going in the course of a week, you might set the bar a little bit low, you know, okay. but at least he doesn 't stink well that 's helpful okay. and hopefully i don 't know if we 'll get there today, but we 'll be talking about stinking either this week or next week. Um, oh by the way, Shauna, we do have, I, I knew there was one other thing we needed to announce. Uh, Yes, there is a little bit of a roadshow. Uh, you know,
1: I, I'm kind of torn. I haven't really announced it to my class that you're having. I've just told them that we have a special guest speaker because I had no one signed up for the nursery. And I knew mean, nobody would sign up if they knew that.
0: <laughs> okay, so what you don't know is that I'm speaking at the Frisco Institute on Thursday morning, right? So even if you know now, you can't. We're not. We're still keeping it a secret from the class in Frisco. Finally, got somebody who volunteered last time. Okay, so we are good. So it's okay if they know that I'm speaking in Frisco on on Thursday morning.
1: We have a nursery at my institute,
0: so that that would help because you got so many young families that are in there. Okay, awesome. All right. Well, that said. Um, I wanted to... Uh, uh, I love it when people will, will send in questions and ask about things. And, I, and this is one that I wanted to be able to address. Um, one of the things that we talked about uh, last time in looking at Alma 13. Remember, this is that moment where Alma's trying to teach in Ammonihah. And uh, and they're getting after him for only being one guy and, and one of the little... Um, Parts of the Law of Moses we're going to stand on is you have to have two witnesses so we don't have to listen to you because you're only one guy. And uh, and we're going to kind of not get to ignore what you're saying until Amulek stands up and then that kind of messes with the whole thing. Uh, ahead of that, though, Alma is going to do this interesting thing. Right in the middle of his discourse, he suddenly drops in the deepest doctrine of the entire Book of Mormon in the first nine verses of, of uh, Alma 13. And it is a wonderful discourse and it's the only references we have really in all the Book of Mormon to the preexistence, existence uh, and, and not only a preexistence but pre-existent atonement. There's a preparatory redemption he says giving us some idea that in the pre-existence we could sin, we could repent, and we had to draw on the power of the atonement before this life so that we could be cleansed again to come to this life. Well that's kinda of, if you'll read very carefully, that's what Alma thirteen is saying. Well let's balance that against the fact that we the other thing that Alma's telling them is, um, you can be taught according to the light that you have. Well who's he teaching? Darkest people we can find, right? Not a lot of light. So the question is, and I thought it was a great question, which was, after looking at the doctrinal depth of Alma 13, why does Alma dedicate so much deep doctrine to the Ammonihites uh, when they are unbelievers? Great question. Why would you think?
1: So they would have the knowledge... Before the Lord
0: destroyed them. You want to maybe testify to them, let them know? Yeah. Was there a record being made so that maybe when they did achieve that level, they can handle that, they can go back and. Perhaps he was going to write it down and make it available saying, I did tell you this this stuff. Okay, yeah. I feel that's
1: exactly it. He had to testify the truth because that was who
0: he was. Yeah, but he could have done it with a lot doctrinally lighter. Information. I mean, for most of our members, even today, with those of us with all the in, in 2016, most of this for most members is going to go because it's so it's so heavy, it's so full. Yeah. Um. Thought,
1: maybe the wicked Ammonites are a lot like the wicked people of today, where they justify their sin by saying, "Well, that's who, I am. Ah. That's who I've always been." So maybe he can say, "No, this is who you've always been."
0: Right. Now listen closely what he's doing, though. In this group, this wasn't just necessarily the the broad group of Ammonihites. We know from the conversations going back and forth, primarily, who was he talking to? The leaders. The leaders, and that made them who? Lawyers, Lawyers, judges, okay? Very legalistic. And they're resting everything on legalistic interpretations of the law of Moses. If you'll read this, this is a very legalistic kind of thing. It is a very logical step-by-step process. And it starts from there were priests ordained before this life based on their, on their uh, proving themselves and becoming priests. They, are, they have come to this earth. They are part of the order of Melchizedek who become Melchizedek priests in this life. So not only is he he presenting almost like a legal brief as to who I am. You're asking why I can teach this on my own? Let me tell you who I am. I am of the order of Melchizedek. My priesthood and this order goes back to the pre-existence. I do have another witness and it's who? Melchizedek. And ultimately, we have another witness for who I am, and that is the Savior himself. That's who I am. So even if, like Melchizedek, who walks into Salem, or Enoch, who's going to do what he does, and they apparently did it on their own without another witness, they are part of a much larger order, and it is the order of Melchizedek, this this preordained group of priests to come, and we have a job, and that is to preach repentance to you. And it's not the order of Nahor's, which is the false side of an order. It is the true order of priests whose lineage goes back before this life. And I will present it to you in legalistic terms. So, that's why I say it seems to come right in the middle of this discourse and he's going back and forth. We get this doctrinal, powerful piece right in the middle and that's what he's doing. Does that sort of make sense? Okay. All right. Uh, I wanted to. I wanted to share one other item here, which I thought was kind of a fun mystery. This is one of those things that I'm reading it. I don't know exactly kind of what I'm reading, I but uh, I get to speculate along with you. And let me just throw a fun idea at you. I want to, I want to go to to Alma sixteen thirteen. Um. I'm going, to, I'm going to bounce back and forth a little bit between a couple of uh, verses here. And Alma and Amulek went forth preaching repentance to the people. And they're going, to, they're going to talk about preaching it in three separate places, which I think is fascinating. They're going to preach it, first of all, where? Temples. Okay, we know that they built temples after the manner of Solomon. And they're going to preach it where? In sanctuaries. And they're going to preach it where? In synagogues. Well, isn't that interesting? The Jews had, if we go back to traditional Judaism, they have temples and synagogues. And he's saying, no, there's a third place. It It is temples and sanctuaries and synagogues. Now... Remember, too, there is one thing that's very, very unique about this group of people in all of history. And that is what? What kind of knowledge do they have? Are they Jews living the law of Moses? Yes. What else do they have?
1: The brass plates.
0: The brass plates. And by revelation, they also have now established under Alma, what? The church. The only people we know in history, it's like, here's a people uh, believing, following, being guided by the law of Moses, and they have the church of Christ alongside of it, complete with baptism and all of the rites of Christianity. Isn't that Christ Christ? Pardon me? Isn't
1: that what Christ established when he
0: was Well, what happened is, is, Christ then comes on the earth and he says, Now the law of Moses is fulfilled in me. So under Peter, James, and John, they are now setting aside Judaism and the law of Moses and living the law of Christ. Christ hadn't yet come yet. He's about 80 years away at this point. So here's a group of people who have the church of Christ and the law of Moses both. So wouldn't that begin to suggest that maybe they had some things going on in terms of places they would go to do the law of Moses and sanctuaries potentially for the church of Christ? Don't so know, but there is a there is an interesting thing that he says about sanctuaries. If we look at and we'll go backward to Alma fifteen, if you jump with me. Verse 17. This is in Alma 15. Therefore, after Alma, having established the church at Sidon, seeing a great check, seeing the people were checked according to the pride of their heart, began to humble themselves before God and began to assemble themselves at their sanctuaries. Okay? And then they're doing an interesting thing in the sanctuary. And it's hard to know if this is hyperbole or if there's something actually here. Makes it kind of a fascinating idea. What are they doing in their sanctuary? Worshiping God. Where? Before the altar. altar. Now, this idea of worshiping before the altar... Let me give you one more here. Um, I'm going to go over to... Alma 17, 4... The other place that it talks about this, this is the this is the sons of Mosiah that we're about to talk about. They've been teaching the word of God for the space of fourteen years, having had much success bringing to the knowledge of the truth by the power of their words. Many were brought before where, before the altar of God. Now, here's here's where this is this is kind of an interesting thing. It is hard to know. There's a couple of possibilities. Uh, number one, this is just purely a, a uh, pattern of speech that was present at this time. We don't find it anywhere else in the Book of Mormon where they're brought before the altar of God in the sanctuaries. We don't have any, just these two references at this period of time. And it could just be a pattern of, of speech, because, for instance, in our lives, do we, when when somebody is converted to the gospel of Christ, now do we bring them uh, to the sanctuary before the altar of God?
1: If you compare in the law of Moses back in Israel, the altar
0: was where they did their sacrifice. It was today, our altar is the sacrament table. It is bring ourselves before the altar of the Lord and we confess and repent in our sin. In a very
1: bar- altar in the temple
0: yes there is and and so if we're separating out the altar of the temple which I'm very always aware that and and I've talked about before that there are two altars um, in the temple as there was two altars in the temple of Solomon the altar of incense which is in our endowment room and then the the holy of holies which is in our ceiling room and those are two separate sets of altars Uh, it is fascinating in their sense they're taking it out of the temple and saying there was an altar there is another altar by the way in the Book of Mormon they are not talking about the altar of God but anybody know where the other altar is that they talk about First Nephi 2 1 Nephi 1 2 it's when Lehi or 2 1 To 1 when the, when when uh, Lehi sets up his tent in the wilderness the first thing he does is builds an altar That's part of what made him a false prophet in the eyes of Laman and Lemuel, remember? Because now he's doing temple ordinances outside of the temple. You have to kill the false prophets, and that's kind of what they reacted to. But, I think it's fascinating that their term that they're using is brought before the altar of God. Now, let me take a couple of steps back. In traditional Christianity, do they have, do they talk about coming before the altar of God?
1: Well, yeah, even even though I, you know, was a member
0: of the church
1: when I was a little girl, I grew up going
0: uh, many times to a, a Protestant church. Oh yeah. And uh, every every time uh, at the end of the preacher's sermon. Yep. Here comes the altar call. And right. People walk up the aisle. Absolutely, The altar call of that moment is I'm going to come before the altar of God, which is really the kind of the front of the church, confess my sins, and I'm going to accept Jesus now. This is my moment. Okay? Now, in a sense, do we have an altar call in the church, in our church? Where is the moment that we step up and we witness to the church and before God that we are accepting Him? Yeah. Baptism. Baptism. Our altar call in the church is our baptism. That is a a symbolic moment where we are saying we're going to witness before God and everybody else who might be watching that we are willing to go down into the waters of baptism and accept his covenant like like he did going through death and then coming out of the... That's our altar call. Now... I'm a little bit intrigued. Let me add one more piece to this. I don't want to make this too complicated, but I just think it's it's one of those things that gives you an idea there's so much more going on here in the among these Book of Mormon people that we have any other idea. In the ne- in the next few chapters, are we going to run into a false altar in the Book of Mormon where people are going to confess their sins before God and and stand tall on an altar. The Rammiampton is coming, right? In a sense, a really big altar, not just where you're going to stand before it, but you stand on top. And on top of this great altar, what are you going to say? I'm so grateful I'm not them. I've been blessed and they're not. I'm really great and they're not. And I know that I'm going to be saved and they're not. So you get this perverted altar that is about to occur, which gives me some sense that there may have been. I guess I boil all this down. They may have had an altar in their sanctuaries where they would stand before that. Maybe, maybe as a pulpit, maybe it's a chance to talk, or it may just have been a uh, figure of speech. But I just think there's. For, now there is one one last possibility. Remember the 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 entire everything we have in the Book of Mormon, comes through Joseph Smith's mind. It has to go through his mind. He's going to look into the Urim and Thummim. He's going to pronounce it to Oliver Cowdery. He's going to write it down about seven words at a time, we know. Um, Is the term, the altar of God, is that something that Joseph Smith would be familiar with? Absolutely. As he's running around these tent revivals, what's going to happen at the end of every revival? Remember, this is the burned out district. These are people that were living along the coast, Massachusetts, and all that, and now land opens up in upstate New York, and these people all get up and they move. And they pull from their ancestral homes. They go to upstate New York. They start, here comes the Erie Canal. They're going to live around the canal. There's cheap land. They're going to go there. But they have left their churches behind. So this is why this is called the burnt out district in upstate New York. Because they have left their church. The, you need to send in the preachers and the revivalists to rechurch them. But now it's open market, right? Now it's competitive. So a lot of different churches, whether you're Methodists or, or a disciple of Christ or whatever, they're all showing up to try and save these souls, and it's competitive. But at the end of that also, they're going to get done preaching, this revival, they're there, and then what comes right at the end of the meeting? The altar call. I think most of uh, the churches today use an
1: altar to serve their from.
0: yes right and the idea and the idea of coming forward in that altar call is I'm going to literally I'm a stranger I'm going to come in and I'm going to stand before the altar of God. Which is, which is, the altar is supposed to be like the throne of God. I'm going to stand in front of the throne and I'm going to witness to the community and to God that I now accept Him. I have a broken heart, contrite spirit, and I'm going to accept Jesus into my life. That's, that's the, the move here. And there's a sense, that you kind of get an idea that there was a moment perhaps in these sanctuaries... Maybe maybe this was a, some literalism to say yeah there was an altar or at least a symbolic sense because we have an altar call but we don't have an altar at that moment but our baptism but our sacramental table is a reminder of what covenant baptismal covenant at the moment when we stood before God and we said we're taking Him in does that make sense so in a sense we do have an altar of God it's just not traditional yeah. Well, I am- Walk up the of the that makes perfect sense doesn't it I hadn't thought of that could our testimony meeting be an altar call absolutely to so stand publicly before the people and and declare that we have a testimony of God and his goodness in our life I like that I, Cindy I hadn't thought of that so yeah I know, I snaked two or three. Let me put it back here. For those of you keeping track at home, I'm back at a, Alma 16, and there are three, there are three uh, kind of cross-references here. There's Alma 16, 13, and then Alma 15, and Alma 17. I'm going to do a little kind of puttering around on this. It's kind of kind of fun. But. All right. Is that enough on that? Okay. Yeah. There difference between
1: sanctuaries and synagogues.
0: I think you know what I think. The fact that these guys had uh, all of that, um, I think there was. My own personal opinion is that in the Jewish tradition, you do have temples for those high holy days uh, where you're going to have to go do the, the, those ordinances. But that's not necessarily. Something that you would do every week you 're going to and, and or if going to the temple is not convenient, then you go to the synagogues with an idea that about once or twice a year you 'll make your pilgrimage to the temple i 'm suspecting that because they also had the Church of Christ, they may also have had chapels, so they might have had synagogues when they were doing um, Law of Moses things. They would have temples on the high holy days to go take care of those rites. And then they would also have um, these places where they would come and confess God in a very Christian way. Yeah. And
1: I think they were limited
0: as to who could, who could go into Yes. Facilities. Absolutely. Yep. So it makes sense that in this particular period of time that they would have... See, in a sense now, we are... Boy, I could get really detailed on this. In a sense, our Judaism in us and our Judaism in, in, in restoring everything to us as Latter-day Saints is the fact that we have synagogues slash sanctuaries, which is where we stand right now, and we have temples. We have these two. When they lost the temple, and then even into Catholicism, the idea was that they would take the temple and the... And the synagogue sanctuary, and combine it into one thing, so that 's why when you go into a like a very ornate Catholic church, for instance, you 're going to walk in and he, the first part of this is the sanctuary, but what 's right behind the altar the the nave right, and the nave is to be that holy place, which is kind of this is our temple part, and the head of this is the synagogue part, and we 're going to bring it together. If you want to read a fun article sometime, Hugh Nibley wrote a beautiful talk called The Christian Envy of the Temple. And he talks about how it was all kind of combined together when they lost the temple. And even if they had the temple, today if the Jews rebuilt the temple, they wouldn't necessarily know what to do with it completely. They'd have an idea, but they've been living now for thousands of years without a temple. But by the way, a lot of Jewish congregations will now call their synagogues temples. Temple Emmanuel and, and and stuff like that, yeah. We actually lived in Missouri State whenever
1: the RLDS church was building their temple
0: across the street from our visitor center, and they didn't really. know. Oh, the RLDS had no idea what to do with the temple. Now what do we do? We're supposed to build it.
1: They were even asking.
0: We're kind of rejecting a lot of that other stuff. I don't know. They were even asking the children what was do. with the
1: temple. They do have a really nice museum though, and they have some.
0: Yeah, and the con- the conch shell thing is kind of—it's a very cool building.
1: Yeah, it's in the front of the temple, like our church faces
0: the back of the temple. We Amazing, isn't it? Okay, that said, all right, let's move forward. Now, here's been here's been my dilemma as we go into this next little stretch here. Two things. Uh, one, uh, a few years ago, uh, I wrote a book that Deseret Book was nice enough to print, uh, a novel called Bearing Our Swords. And as part of that, I, I spent a long time going through the anti-Nephi-Lehi's and everything that was there and, and just really came to love and appreciate and soak up everything I could on these people. And there's so much about these about Lamoni and his people and the anti-Nephi-Lehi's and Ammon's and the sons. Messiah's mission to them and how they did it and all that. There is so much. The other thing is, is, I don't know if there's a story in the entire Book of Mormon that's so well known as this. Can every primary boy in the church <laughs> tell you this story? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, they chopped off the arms. It was cold. <laughs> so, there is so much here, and there's and it's so well known. The idea of uh, this to me it 's a little bit like a buffet, and you go to like go to a buffet in las vegas and it 's like two thousand yards long, but you can only eat so much, so you end up having to just pick a couple of things and leave everything else behind i 've been spending the last week or so um, when i wasn 't here at the church till midnight thirty uh, all weekend um, trying to figure out of all the things in this magnificent buffet, which ones do we pick on, which story do we emphasize? in this next couple of weeks because there's a hundred different directions we could go with this uh so i'm gonna i'm gonna cherry pick a little bit here uh and i apologize at the front end because i'm gonna leave out lots of stuff and i'm aware that i'm drinking out of a fire hose and i'm just kind of getting a little bit here along the way um so even as, again, as I was thinking this morning, what am I going to teach next week? I don't know what I'm going to teach next week because a lot of it depends on where we go and what jumps out at us. So let's, let's walk through this a little bit together, okay? All right, let's go to Alma 17. So we know that the sons take off from Zarahemla, they turn down the throne, uh, they're, these guys, and, and wouldn't you love to see, this moment needs to be filmed, in all of great cinema moments, great moments in the world, wouldn't you want to see this moment? Here's Alma and Amulek, and I and I keep getting this like this Hollywood view, like Steven Spielberg should be filming this thing, you know. And here's Alma and Amulek. Whoa, whoa, we're just going on to the next town, and then I keep seeing the like over this rise, you know, comes oh, it's Ammon. Oh, he's back. We thought he'd been he's been gone for years, and there he is, and everything. And it's like, <coughs> and then you see him, and then slowly, then you like watch. Rank after rank after rank of here comes these people. Thousands of people behind, but you don't see them at first, right? You see, here's Ammon. They're like, down here, oh, there's Ammon. They come up over the rise, and and John Williams' theme music starts to crank up, and stuff like that. Is Here they come, and it's like, but is anybody with you? And here they come. You know, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people start coming forward. And it's like, yeah, by the way, wouldn't it be wonderful if if every missionary walking off a plane... I'm home, Mom. Oh, we get hugs. Did you bring anybody with you? Yes, here's all my converts. (laughs) And they start pouring off the plane. It's like, yes, we were converted through his efforts, and there are thousands of them. You know, we don't get those moments. These guys did. Ammon, how how did it go? Give me a second. (laughs) Come here. And here they come. Well, that'd be a great moment, okay? Well, that's kind of what this is. It's like remember they're they're fleeing out there, and and they're hoping that Zarahemla will take them on. But but here they come. But before that, we're going to hear about these sons of Mosiah being prepared, and and fascinating how this works. Um, What added more to his joy, as we know, verse 2, they were still his brethren in the Lord. They had done a couple of things. They had waxed strong in the knowledge of God. They were men of sound understanding. They had searched the scriptures diligently that they might know the word of God. Does that sound like the MTC? That's like a preparation for any calling that we're going to do. Okay, yes, so sound, they've studied, they're ready, they're ready to go. You've got a new calling, you're about to do this. You got it. But wait, there's more. That's not enough, is it? Mormon's going to throw in his little commentary, but this is not all. This ain't what this isn't completely what they did. Not only were yes, they were all of these things, but there's more and that is they had given themselves to much prayer and fasting. Now, Because of the fasting, the prayer and fasting, they had two things, and you don't necessarily associate these two things with missionary work. Because of their fasting, they had what? They now had the spirit of prophecy. You don't always think about prophecy as one of those things that we want to make sure if we're going to send our missionary sons and daughters off to have these great experiences. By the way, we want to bless you with the ability of prophecy. President, I don't know and you're setting apart of missionaries over the years if, if that was part of the keys attached to the setting apart, that not only are we going to give you this, the keys of missionary work, but we're also going to give you the gift of prophecy. I don't remember ever sharing that. Yeah, I don't remember in listening to the blessings that you did that prophecy was one of those things that went with that. I don't think we... And the MTC, it's like... I don't know that they sit around and say, let's get you prepared for the gift of prophecy. Because you're going to... Why would they need prophecy as missionaries?
1: They're like a prophet.
0: They're kind of like a prophet. What does a prophet do? Share truth. Share truth and specific truth of...
1: The Savior Jesus, the
0: Savior Jesus Christ. But a prophet?
1: Well, okay. In our church...
0: Yeah. First presidency in the Torah yes. Are all given, they're all given the calling of prophets? prophets that's right. Are we call our former apostles elders? Yeah. Who else in the church gets the title of elder? And they have the same priesthood, even though they another calling in the Melchizedek priesthood. Apostle, they're still the Melchizedek priesthood. Okay. So, but what a prophet's traditionally? What does a prophet do? Don't they tell the future? What's coming in the future? Has the Savior yet come? No, he's 80 years away. So for them to come and bear testimony of Christ, what are they doing? They're prophesying that he is coming. They're prophesying that you will have your sins remitted. There will be an atonement. When? Coming. Same thing in the pre existence. There is going to be an atonement. Why? Yes, he's agreed to do it, but he hasn't even come to earth yet. It's a future event. These guys going out there are going to be prophets. Now, do our missionaries, as they're going out today, are they prophets in the sense they're going to foretell the future? What's coming in the future? The second coming. coming. Oh, sure there are future events that are going to happen I testify to you that your life will be better that the Lord will love you that there will be great blessings coming to your life if you join the church what are we doing? are we not prophesying about what's going to happen down the road? yeah so what they're trying to do they are preparing to prophesy I don't know again we don't always see that mission but it's there to be prophets when we preach the gospel. So they're going to have two things there. So they fasted, so they would have the spirit of prophecy, and... Wow, yeah. So they're going to have the spirit of revelation. They're going to reveal things. And the key to it, by the way, is... Prayer and... Fasting. Now, we've had this conversation when, when, when we were talking about... As we were going through Isaiah... Uh, Last year, we talked about uh, fasting because sometimes I think in the church we have this—we have a little bit of a—we restrict. We have kind of a provincial view of what fasting is. I think. When traditionally, if we're going to outside of a fast Sunday, when are we going to hold a special fast? Family member. Yeah, for a family member. Why? We got stuff that needs to be done. They've got cancer. They've got Okay, we're going to all fast for them. In other words, we're fasting for a specific purpose. So we fast with an end in mind that we want something to happen here. Which has always been a little bit strange to me because on one side I get it, we do it, but does that mean that the Lord is going to honor somebody else's prayer and, and heal them faster because this this one has a big ward and that one has a small ward. This one has a hundred people fasting. This one doesn't have anybody fasting. In other words, and we're going to gang up on them. <laughs> we go, so there is a side of fasting. We go, well, doesn't necessarily always logically make sense that we're going to... The Lord wasn't going to heal him. We all kind of ganged up on him and we all fasted and now he's going to. That doesn't... And yet it does. I know. So, that's why I like to go to Isaiah. Because Isaiah then says, let me tell you what the fast is about. So, we're going to go to one of my favorite chapters Isaiah 58. So, this is Isaiah 58. And this is one of those times when you kind of have to read it in context. And if, you get, if you hear it in context, suddenly Isaiah becomes really, really, really cool. Remember, it's poetic. Isaiah is not prose. It's poetry, and you have to read it as poetry. This is Hawthorne. This isn't uh, a novel. Okay? All right. All uh, right. Jerusalem, verse 2, they seek me daily, they delight to know my ways, sort of, they ask me the ordinances, um, they say they take delight in approaching God, however, where have we fasted, say they, and thou seest not, wherefore have we afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge, we're really putting on this ostentatious fasting thing, um, we're really, really good at our fasting. Um, Uh, I always think, for instance, when you're trying to teach kids how to fast, and so nobody can do uh, this kind of fast like a six-year-old that's had to skip a couple of meals, right? I'm dying. No, I'm never going to eat again. Kind of like my cat first thing in the morning. They're just going, "You hate me. You won't feed me. I'm dying." Okay, that's kind of what they were doing. Oh, look at this! Behold, in the day of the fast, you find pleasure. Exact all your. your," And then he says, uh, "Verse five, Israel." Is such a fast that I have, is this the fast I've chosen? A day for men to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes? Will thou call this a fast, an acceptable day to the Lord? Are you kidding me? That's not what fasting is. And then he says, verse 6, is this not the fast I have chosen? Let me tell you my fast. And it's not that one. Is this not the, ch- the fast I have chosen? And then there's a couple of things that fasting does. To loose the bands of wickedness. And and, let, and I, I, I went in and I, and I did the... Uh, I tried to emphasize all the action words. Because I think that's important. Here's what fasting does. Uh, is this the fast I've chosen? To loose the bands of wickedness to undo the heavy burdens to let the oppressors go free break every yoke deal thy bread to the hungry cover thou that's naked what is the purpose of fasting? if, you, if you're reading through this why do we fast? freedom for who? yourself for, for us and for the needy so what is the purpose of fasting and, what do we, and in order to become Christ-like, what do we do? Yeah, and then what? We don't sit around kind of, now I'm humble. What are we doing? Yes. If I'm fasting, and, and part of my purpose of my fast is to loose, undo, free, break, deal, cover. What's the purpose of my fast? Action. Action. The purpose of me fasting is to do something. It is to be so filled with the Spirit that in the process of becoming Christ-like, I act, I respond, I cover, I feed, I loose, I preach, I I reach out to. Yeah?
1: Unlike being in ashes and sackcloth and drawing all the attention to us, it's... It, it can be for us, but it's often for others also.
0: And I think that's kind of where he's going here—that the purpose of our fasting is to create in us action to get ourselves outside of ourselves. I was a little sobered on uh, at the at uh, the dance on Sunday night. We were kind of patting ourselves on the back that we had. Um, uh, we had it catered by El Norte, the, the dinner ahead of that. And so I kept bragging, about, oh, you guys are going to get great enchiladas. Here it comes, and it's going to be El Norte, and it's wonderful. And they came in, and it was just set up and everything. And, and everybody loved the dinner. And they why wouldn't they? It was a great dinner. And then at the dance, I had one, one of the attendees uh, be approached by somebody else, and they asked them how they liked the dinner. And there was a pause, and the person said... Um, I haven't eaten in about three days. This is the first real dinner I've had in days. So yeah, that meant a lot to me. That there were some people at our feast that were starving. Couldn't say it out loud, wouldn't say it out loud. But one of the purposes that in coming to this conference over the weekend before they could be fed spiritually they were starving physically and those needs are there but people don't always say it, they really don't
1: Just the fact that
0: all these people are joined together and they're fasting together with my purpose in mind. Yeah. And I've heard a lot about that and I think if that's our goal is to build my and communities and boards that are just for yeah.
1: families, Just my personal experience having been a part of those and actually having been the subject of those fast, it does lend itself to that where
0: it's just... Yeah. So so in other words, the cool part about this is, yes, I understand that we fast because we hope that the Lord is going to help in some way or bring peace to the family or something like that. But more so, he's saying the purpose of the fast is, is to create a bonding, a Zionness, and then move, then go forward, then reach out, then take care of all of these kind of things. I was taking a look at this too there's a spiritual sense but in a sense for the sons of Mosiah if they're if knowing they're knowing what they're about to do if they're going to fast and they're going to be filled with prophecy they need to preach but in order to go do it doesn't this describe the sons of Mosiah perfectly didn't they now go forward out of Zarahemla up to the land of Nephi with an idea to loose the bands of wickedness, undo the heavy burdens, let the oppressed go free, and break every yoke. Now, as a result of those wonderful people accepting the gospel, they were going to have to deal bread to the hungry, they were going to have to cover them because they were going to lose their homes. They would have to literally leave their home and hopefully as refugees... For down into Zarahemla, and hopefully that the people of Zarahemla... And they went without knowing whether Zarahemla would accept them or not. We've kind of been killing your people. There's probably nobody in the city of Zarahemla, when these Lamanites crown the hill, and they're coming down the hill, there's probably nobody in Zarahemla that doesn't have somebody in their family that was killed in a war or two by these guys. Mamoni himself has blood on his hands. He keeps killing the serpents that spread the, that can't keep track of the sheep. That's why they bury their swords. So they'll never be tempted again. So this whole idea of them uh, fasting. And then, by the way, before we, before we leave here... Remember that ultimately when we do this and when we fast with this kind of purpose, Lord, tell me what I need to do. Tell me where you need me to be. Help me to be able to be that arm of yours and move forward. Well, I have
1: been sitting here debating whether to share this, but I will. Um, several years ago, I had a man in California who passed away and one of her sons had um, MS, and it was very, very fast, progressive. And uh, after the funeral, we stayed a few days, and then they went back to Oregon, and his wife went back to Oregon, and you know, went back here. And my cousin got an in- infection in his catheter.
0: Huh. It
1: was, you know, he was bad already, but it was just getting worse. So one of my
0: friends, Ann Manowitz, I, I know Ann Manowitz, <laughs> yeah.
1: and I were starting to fast one day during the week and it was on a Thursday night and we were on the phone and praying and talking about our fast and I said could you fast for my cousin and she said yes well my life before that when I would get up in the morning the first thing I do is have a Dr. Pepper in my hand last thing at night was a Dr. Pepper
0: you know totally understandable yes
1: I fasted that Friday, and that's the first fast that I have ever done. However, I wanted to do the supper, I'd say a prayer for my cousin. It was on Friday, and I got up Saturday morning, and it was two and a half years before I ever came out. Put a Dr. Pepper in my mouth, and it was so bad I threw it away.
0: I just thought, you know, the Lord, yes, we
1: can fast for certain things, but the Lord will give us what we need.
0: He will, won't he? He will. Um, I had a... uh, Let let, let me just share this. I I shared this on Saturday night. I've got a a client of mine, um, wonderful little gal that I've worked with who is now away at school. And uh, uh, I got an SOS from her that uh, a very traumatic thing had happened in her life. Uh, I haven't talked to her in, in weeks. And I got this SOS from her, and she said, "Could we please talk?" And so I, we arranged a chance to, to uh, have a Skype session, and I'm, and I talked to her, and then she said, uh, "She said, Brother Hinckley, I think I saw an angel." I, I, I said, really? Yeah, and she says. Um, She says, I was really down, and I was really hurting, and I was really lost, and I like my roommates, but nobody was there. It's the middle of the day. They're gone. They're off at school and stuff like that. I'm all by myself, and I'm hurting. Uh, And I just felt so alone up here. And she said, the only thing I could think of to do was to go to the temple. So she said she drove over to the temple, and she didn't want to be obvious that she was really hurting. So she said she walked around the temple grounds, and she found a little nook close to the temple. And she says, I snuggled down into that nook and just kind of slid down and sat with her back up against the temple and just sat there and felt so alone. And she said, all the time I'm doing this, I'm praying, Lord, I need some help. I feel so alone. Um, I kind of need to know that you're there and I'm just here and I'm struggling. She says she's sitting there with... Her eyes closed, and she heard footsteps walk right by her, and she heard a male voice say to her, Heavenly Father loves you. It'll be okay. And she says, I looked up, and and he had walked off. She said, I did not get a chance to see who it was, and I said, we don't even know what side of the veil that was from. And she said, no, I don't. I don't know. But she said it made all the difference. It's like at that moment next to the temple, he found me. And he sent somebody. And he's there. And it made all the difference. And I, and I, I guess I believe that somewhere up at BYU, there is a young man that has no idea the impact that he made on that woman that was struggling that moment and was willing to open his mouth and go do something. That's the spirit of fasting, I think, that we're talking about. And certainly it's the spirit of fasting that drove the sons of Mosiah. So finally, I always love then, if we finish with that, um, verse 8, Then shall thy light break forth in the morning. Verse 9, Then shalt thou call, and the Lord shall answer. Thou shalt cry, and he shall say... Here I am. 10. If thou wilt draw out thy soul to the hungry... You'll take care of them and satisfy the afflicted soul. Then shall thy light rise in obscurity and thy darkness be as noonday. And then he just goes on and on to say, this is what happens to those that fast. But fast and the purpose is serving. It's not just a specific thing that we're choosing, but to be his angel. Yeah. I've
1: decided that I really need to use the tool of the fast. In many aspects of my life, and how I think about different things, I watched a program about refugees in Syria. Yeah. There's such concern because of young men coming into the country, but then you see the heartache and the stories of those poor people and their families and what they have suffered. And I feel like I need to know what can father
0: feels yeah. about that. Yeah
1: certainly the election I
0: need to know <laughs> yeah but you know what as Latter Day Saints if we have any we in our in our history we call we call our ancestors pioneers w- w- weren't they really weren't they really refugees weren't they refugees streaming out of Illinois looking for a place to land yeah so I agree alright <laughs> okay we're on verse 3 all right. couple of things. Um, let me hop down to verse 11. This kind of jumped out at me. Um, actually in the middle of listening to Sister Burton and the lord and, and they're trying to decide are they going to go this is a, the sons of mosiah is a little bit like a group of christian missionaries that says let's go to syria and preach to isis it's literally on that level and and their father's going i don't think so <laughs> no really we're being given assurances that we'll be okay we're going to go preach to isis well no they they tend to kill people yeah i know but we'll be okay
1: I can't even imagine what
0: their mothers are saying. Oh, you can't imagine what their mothers are saying, yeah. And the Lord said unto them, Go forth among the Lamanites, thy brethren, establish my words, and yet ye shall be patient in long suffering and affliction. Yeah, they went through a lot of long suffering and affliction and, and prison and, and, and beatings and all that kind of stuff. And then he gives an interesting phrase here that kind of gave me a bit of a pause. Yet shall there be patient in long-suffering and affliction, that, so that, ye may show forth good examples unto them in me. Now, let me, let me say that one again. You're going to go through a lot of long-suffering and afflictions, so that, for the purpose of, that ye may show forth good examples unto them in me. So, someone say that differently. Put that in different words.
1: So, be, uh, teaching them in me. so what? So that you are being like me. Like
0: you will be like you'll be an example. Yeah.
1: An example to them.
0: Of what? Of God. An example of Yeah, and and specifically the part of him, an example of someone who's going through affliction and, and suffering and bearing it well. You're going to go through afflictions and you're going to be an example of how to handle afflictions because they will learn by watching how you handle it. By the way, these, these magnificent anti-Nephi-Lehi's, I will say just a reminder, their example is two things. One is it comes in the middle of the book. Number two, this is the group of converts that every prophet in the Book of Mormon and throughout history wants. Why? Because the ones they're about to teach are these people that will never ever fall away. The Nephites keep going, yes, no, yes, no. Uh, we're going to obey, we'll disobey. We're here, we're there. You know, we'll believe, we won't believe. We'll be scattered, we'll be gathered. You know, and, and we teach the anti-Nephi-Lehi's and what happens? Boom. They never fall away. They are the rock hard, solid, and, it, and they are the example. To me, they are the Book of Mormon. Every, outside of the, the coming of the Savior, this is the story of the Book of Mormon. This is what every prophet hopes for. Is these people that they're about to go teach. Now, by the way, um, along with that, I will say, Mormon, in painting the picture of them, is going to give you a really one-dimensional side of it. It's a bit flat. And I think Mormon's being just a tad unfair to these people. Why? Look at 14. Oh, you know, they are wild, hardened, ferocious people who delight in the murdering the Nephites, robbing, plundering, hearts set upon riches, gold, silver, precious stone. They sought to murder plan. They were indolent people. They worship idols. The curse of God had fallen on them. They're just... <laughs> Sounds like his Lamanites, doesn't it? Yes. In 400 A.D.?
1: Uh-huh.
0: What happens to these horrible, indolent, awful people? thousands are going to join the church these horrible awful indolent people when when the king is passed out for 3 days and it's and it's his wife who loves him and cares about him and go yeah he doesn't stink <laughs> And they love their families, and, they're, and they love, and so quickly they learn to love even the people that are about to attack them and kill them. Under, for, you look at all the things that they're doing; these are they, uh, their behaviors are inexcusable. But the people underneath there are fantastic people that I believe covenanted with the Lord prior to this life, and when they heard the gospel, they got it full throated, and they never left. Okay. So, right.
1: There were some that were, and that
0: No question, because there's some that were going to never accept the gospel, no matter what, and they're going to attack. So it's true that some would be like this, but he's making such kind of a broad. The people he's going to teach; these are all really bad. No, they're not really bad. Some are much more hardened than others. Yeah. Isn't
1: that also true today? Sometimes we look at someone on the outside, and we may.
0: They are a hardened, indolent people. Absolutely.
1: And yet, these people, some of them, will soften their hearts and they accept the gospel so readily. Ah. Because the reason they can't have all those things in their life is because there was a hole, and they were trying to fill that hole and then they recognize that
0: the Savior can do sure. But in the process of getting on both sides of a debate, we will tend to kind of one-dimensionalize people on the other side. Yes. And, 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 and this political season has taught that like no other. <laughs> Where we are polarized and you got people on both the other side going, are you some kind of idiot? I can't believe that says something about you because you're voting for that person. Well, it's
1: because of the false traditions of their fathers that they... It is. But it's interesting when, um, and maybe you're going to get to the talking to Lamoni, and he realizes that um, you know after Amos cut off you know, the arms. And
0: stuff, right, right.
1: And he uh, he starts. Lamoni is starting to worry about his standing before the great spirit. Yes. I'm kind of thinking there's something there. There's conscience. There's still a sense of consciousness.
0: Yeah. And in fact, there's even a tradition among him that says we believe that there was a great spirit. And we've had this belief all along that one of the reasons why the Nephites keep beating us all the time is that maybe they have access to a great spirit that we don't. There's a belief that underlies this. No, no matter how kind of one-dimensional, a bit flat this is, the, there are some wonderful people whose behaviors are deplorable. But when they get a chance to hear the gospel, something shifts in them. Okay? All right. So, let me just go back then and finish this. Um, So, I'm going to send you. You're going to have to be patient and long-suffering. Yep, they are going to be turkeys to you at first. Uh, And I want you to show good examples unto them. Why? Because what kind of suffering and afflictions are these guys going to go through? We're jumping a couple. We're going to find out that, in my in my own belief, it's just this is just my speculation. I believe that uh, most of the sons of Helaman, the two thousand stripling warriors, if they weren't orphans, they had at least lost a parent. The, the The math just says there can't be that many kids because we lost a thousand people who just laid down and be slaughtered, and they hid their kids off there. I think that's I think that's their parents. It's my own belief. Be be patient and long suffering. Yeah. They were going to, they would have the example of the sons of Mosiah as how you handle affliction and long suffering because when their own suffering came along, they would know who to look to and it would be these brethren. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. That said, um... oh let's do this I mentioned this when we taught it a few years ago but can I just since we've slept since then and some of you might not have been here just a reminder it's interesting Uh, Ammon shows up in town he gets carried off to Lamoni Lamoni says uh, what's your plans which is interesting didn't kill him right off What's your plans? Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm planning on hanging around. In fact, I, you know, I'm, I may live here the rest of my life. What's the next thing he does? <laughs> you want you want one of my daughters for wife? Wait, this is a Nephite. That's a little bit weird. Yeah. Ammonites have been on several occasions, so this wasn't the first time a Nephite wandered in and were. Right. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's true, but this is one of those times when they're coming in and we're not. So, but there's one difference with Ammon. <coughs> His father was a king. now in these days in the Nephite kingdom, how do you know who the king is? How do you separate who the king is if you're the if you're the king or queen of England, how do we know who the king or queen of England is what 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 accoutrements do they have that testify that they are king and queen. Uh-huh. A crown and scepter. Orb. Okay, they've got the sword, they got the orb, and you can go through the Tower of London and see the royal orb and you see the... Okay? Among the Nephites, how do you know who the king is? What do they got? Sword. The sword. What sword?
1: Sword of life and
0: The king is the one that's got the sword of Laban. Does he have an orb?
1: The Liahona.
0: liahona. Yes, he does. Yeah, there's no surprises here. (laughs) So the king is the one who has the sword of Laban. Now, if I am King Mosiah and I'm going to send my sons off to an indolent, angry people... Might I send something along with him?
1: The sword,
0: maybe. <laughs> if not the sword of Laban, at least a duplicate, replica. a replica. And, and, and if I'm if I'm the, if I'm Messiah, I might even send the sword of Laban. I just might because I want because this has a power to it, and he needs to be able to defend himself just in case. Just wouldn't shock me at all if he sends a sort of Laban with him. Yeah.
1: But couldn't that really get Amnin in some trouble? Because if these people who are descendants of Laban and Lemuel who believed stolen from them, wouldn't that make it more likely? They could.
0: could. And, but, now depending on what story is told you're right Might. but at the very least if, I, if I've got that sword or maybe, maybe this is a royal sword maybe it's not the Lord sword of Laban but it's at least enough to say I know who the leader is because they're the ones that have the biggest sword okay so he's going to show up and, how, and so if he's going to show up in town and Lamoni goes who are you oh my gosh look at the sword who is this guy Who's your dad? Who's your daddy? (laughs) Oh, it's Uzziah. Really? Want my daughter? (laughs) Why would he want the daughter? Unite the the kingdoms. Absolutely, yeah. Let's get them together here. This is a way to kind of protect her, because this is how we do things. Daughters become a nice way of cementing family. Now you're in-laws. You're family. We won't attack you. You won't attack us because we're family. This is an old, old tradition. So, Laman's got the sword. Or, um, Ammon's got the sword. Okay? Is that kind of important in a second? He becomes a servant. Servant's going to go out and protect the flocks. Yeah. Wait a minute. Now, this is kind of important, so I, I believe that that's what happens there. And um, now this is this is one of those little proofs. Joseph could not have known this. This is one of the proofs of the Book of Mormon that just leaps at me almost more than anything else, and especially for those of us that believe that the Book of Mormon took place in the Mesoamerican area. Okay. This just makes perfect sense, okay? Ammon's gonna when they, when you know when they attack, they gather the the sheep are scattered. Then he's gonna gather. I'm gonna be their friend. I can. This is a way to kind of win some hearts, uh, okay? So he's gonna stand forth. Thirty six. Uh, he's gonna cast stones with mighty power. He slew he slews some with the with the sling. He's a sling slewer, whatever that is. <laughs> They're angry. They and they could not hit him with the stones. Therefore, they came with what? Their swords, right? Clubs. Why wouldn't they use swords? Why why are, why is it clubs? Let me show you why it's clubs and it's and that's incredibly accurate and it's and it's something that Joseph Smith wouldn't have known. Amma among the Mayans, the Mayan kings, they had a, th- this was their sword. Uh, because uh, metal was... Uh, some people that have attacked the, the uh, Book of Mormon says they didn't have any metal. They didn't use metal swords. Now, one of the places uh, that I've been several times, uh, they had quicksilver in there, which is a highly refined... Uh, process. They had metal. We just haven't been able to find any metal swords because for the most part they didn't use metal swords. What they used was clubs. The clubs were wooden and they have obsidian, especially in the top you can tell that they would, they would cut a groove in, in the wooden club and then they would slide obsidian all the way around and then they would tie that with a leather strap to, to, to tie that in there. Is that pretty potent? The Spaniards talk about trying to attack a group of um, Aztecs using these clubs. And they would chop off the heads of horses with these clubs. But they were clubs. They weren't swords. So one of the more accurate descriptions we have. And so you can see kind of the ancient one. You see them showing these. They have these clubs. So probably this moment when they then are tired of getting hit by stones, they rush him with their clubs. This is probably pretty accurate. Okay? Ammon's got the sword. They've got the clubs. That's why sometimes... Um, some have speculated that says when it says that he uh, cut off their arms... Then it might have been armaments. Might have cut off their clubs because a sword would do pretty well against a wooden club. Do that. Uh, And I believed that for a little while that maybe it wasn't arm arm, but it was, which isn't nearly as fun. (laughs) (laughs) Except for the fact, and I'm not going to show it because it's it's kind of pretty irreverent. Uh, We now have, we now have uh, from Aztec, Paintings. The fact that it was a very common Aztec uh, way of doing things—that they would cut off the arms of their enemies and they would use those as battle trophies. And and what? Yeah. And, and, I'm, and the painting I'm not going to show you is of a very ancient one where there's a prostitute in town and there's several men vying for her affection. And some people have got like fruit and some got... And one of them who's a warrior, he's got an arm. <laughs> you should be with me because I'm the great warrior. Why? Because here's the arm of my of my victor, or my, the guy I vanquished. Here's his arm. It's, it's pretty gory. Okay? This was a practice. What well, a chance that Joseph Smith knew any of this. No. It, it really isn't. So... All right. Ammon would know that. He, 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 so it's possible that he's actually kind of uh, staying within that custom of the time and he's responding the way that you'd expect. And so let me finish with this. I've got five minutes. Do I really want to do this? Let me do the short version. 39. So the, uh, Alma 17, 39, right at the end. When they had driven afar, he returned, they watered their flocks and returned them to the pasture of the king. Uh, and then the gang... This is the primary moment that they love so much. Uh, went into the king bearing the arms which had been smitten off by the sword of Ammon and those that sought to slay him. They were carrying to the king in testimony these things as they had done. Okay, so if it really is arms, it's a pretty gory uh, sight to plop these things in the middle of the thing. And here's all their arms. Um, who's not there while this was going on? Yeah. Ammon. In that tradition, if this, if if I if I can wave around the arm of my vanquished foe, that's high stuff. And in fact, you would almost think that would be the moment to say, "I really am powerful and strong." Here's the arm. Now let me teach you about the gospel. But he didn't. They take in the arm. What does Ammon go to do? One of the horses. <laughs> yeah. So. Does it also make sense then that uh, when we get to Alma 26, Ammon's going to say I do not boast in my own strength but I will be- boast in the strength of my God. That part of um, and, and, and we will use this as jumping off so he- here is where I want to begin next week. Um because we're going, to talk, we're going to start next week specifically with this idea. One of the ways that Ammon is able to, to be effective in bringing the gospel to these people is that he exudes this wonderful spirit of meekness. But it's a, it's a very powerful, strong meekness. And in our society today, meekness is weakness. And so what I'd like to do, and I'm, uh, I will finish with... Yeah, I'll finish with this one. I want to finish with this one. Quote from Neil Maxwell. And I thought I had a lot of favorite Neil Maxwell quotes. This is, this is my favorite, and I'll finish with this. Elder Maxwell. Even so, why is the stress on meekness? Merely because it is nice to be nice? Reasons are far more deeply embedded than in, in the plan of happiness, than that. God. ...who has seen billions of spirits... ...pass through his plan of salvation... ...has told us to be meek... ...in order to enhance our enjoyment of life... ...and our mortal education. Will we be meek and listen to him? That we're going to find... ...that what's going to exude... ...through these next little chapters here is a meekness on the part of Ammon and Aaron... ...and those that would do the teaching... ...and the meekness on the part of Lamoni... ...and the the anti-Nephi-Lehi... ...to accept... ...and to be taught and to become meek and the peaceable people of the earth it's the anti-Nephi-Lehi's I believe that Mormon is, is referring to when he talks about those that walk the peaceable walk among the children of men in uh, Moroni 7 these are the peaceable people and they're meek but, but Neil, I'll finish with this, Neil Maxwell gives us one other idea will we be meek and listen to him? Or will we be like the gadadrine swine, that pathetic example of totus porcus, going whole hog after the trends of the moment? Okay, so I got, <laughs> so, so our goal this week is to not be totus porcus after the things of the world. So I don't, because this whole idea of going whole hog after the world is, is the anti of meek. So what I want to start with next week. I want to take this week to study about why meekness is, is not weakness. And what it means to be meek and powerful, not meek and dormant. Is that your challenge? And we will pick this up next week. Uh, I bury my testimony to the truthfulness of all of this. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. amen.
1: We are so grateful that we've been able to be here this day and to learn more about thy gospel and the scriptures. We're grateful for Brother King and all his preparation. We ask thee, Father, to please bless us that we might have thy spiritual witness throughout this week. We us to be able to be mindful and receptive to the Holy Ghost and to be able to be more like thee. We're grateful for all we have and say these things in the name of Jesus Christ.
0: Amen. Okay. Have a great week. And those, those of you in Frisco, I'll see you Thursday morning. Hey, you.
1: Well, I just totally enjoyed.
0: Fun to have you here. <laughs> Every you. now and then.
1: <laughs> yeah, when well,
0: I'm in town. All right. You're always welcome.
1: Um when it was talking about, you know, when we go through all those trials and stuff and that we do 'em well, you know.
0: I got it ready for you.
1: Sometimes I don't think we realize that we're gonna we're fixing to go through those things. You know. And um like the things I've gone through with my ex and stuff, you know, they um